Welcome to episode 6 of A Dissident's Guide to the Constitution. We are entitling this episode Rule of Whose Law. The theme we are considering is the rule of law, a theme which is bandied about almost incessantly now by the press, politicians and above all the judiciary. So we thought we needed to get a grasp on it as the penultimate of the introductory episodes we're running. There'll be one more after this, considering the nation state and the crown, before we get into the historical section B of this podcast. The rule of law. Well, gentlemen, it's not entirely coincidental that we have delayed, I think, well over a year before recording this episode, because all of us felt that we were going to have to do a huge amount of reading before we came to this topic. Uh, it seems pretty much everyone who's uh, a senior judge or a retired politician these days writes an entire book or at least a chapter on the rule of law. But the trouble is their definitions do not agree with each other and the goalposts keep getting shifted. So if I may pick on David first, do you have a preliminary or overall idea, David, of why it's so difficult to get one's hands on this slippery eel, the rule of law? I would say because it's been captured, right? This was a, a concept that came from a particular worldview, that, that of classical liberalism. And it's, it became something which stood for uh, rightness and justice. Uh, it stood for liberty. It stood for uh, the, the individual against the state, the small man against the great, because it was above governments. It was above powerful elites. But of course, it's been captured by governments and it's been captured by powerful elites. So it's become the reverse of that which it originally was. And it makes it very difficult to pin down. I was looking at some uh, quotes from the, the, the last night of liberalism, Ludwig von Mises. One of the quotes is, it's the rule of law alone which hinders the rulers from turning themselves into the worst gangsters. Now, what we've got in, in contrast to that now is we've got the situation where uh, Kaliningrad is being uh, blockaded and the country blockading it is doing so at the, at the behest of the European Union. And the European Union says it's not a blockade. No, no, no. We're letting lawful goods in. It's only the unlawful ones. Uh, that we're preventing crossing the border. So we're upholding the rule of law. And who wrote the rule, that particular rule? Well, they did, not the people transmitting the goods. There is no uh, pretense that there's any higher principle at stake. There's no arguing from higher principle. It's just we sat down in a smoke-filled room and we decided that the law now says this, and it now does. And the, the, the rights that you had to trade freely across this border yesterday, well, they no longer exist because we say so. This is the very opposite of the rule of law, but it's become what that phrase now means. Is that true that, that this came out of classical liberalism? Because did the rule of law, is this not one of the most fundamental principles of common law? Is this not something that actually goes back as far as Magna Carta? This is not something that, that is founded in the argument between uh, the rights of individuals and the divine right of kings? I, absolutely, Mike. You, you, you're, you're quite right. It came from classical liberalism 
what came through classical liberalism, it was captured by that, but it's a it's a it's a much older idea than that. The idea that that um, there is a standard to which we are all held, which is not a human standard and is not subject to um, amendment by those in power. And the key thing is it applies to everybody, no matter what their perceived status within society is, from the from the lowest born to the uh, highest king, right? Exactly. So, and and specifically, it applies to limit the discretionary power of those of those who rule. That, that, that they do not have the discretion to invent things of their own, uh, their own creation. They must adhere to this higher law. This higher standard. Uh, another another quote to uh, from Mises to uh, give you an example of that is that it's it is the social function of the laws to curb arbitrariness of the police. The rule of law restricts the arbitrariness of the officers as much as possible. It strictly limits their discretion and thus assigns to the citizens a sphere in which they are free to act without being frustrated by government interference, to which I would simply say, hands, face, space, right? All of that was swept away in COVID. The rule of law was abandoned in an instant because the state said so. Now, which of the branches of government was it? Because you were getting somewhere now, David, when you correctly said, if the rule of law means anything, it means that laws are not subject to arbitrary, or you might say overnight redefinitions by those in power. Now we have grown up in classical liberalism and we are minded to think of those in power as meaning first and foremost, the executive branch of government, the crown ministers, the executive agencies, and these days perhaps the health services. Uh, and police forces. But is it not the case that it's the courts who are the ultimate backstop here? And if they can be persuaded by the, the social origins they have or the, the, the media they, ha they hear, that it's now uh, verboten to, to touch people or to, be, to breathe upon them, uh, then we're maybe beginning to understand how it can be that laws can be redefined overnight. Uh, and those who do it can look us sweetly uh, in the eye and say, we have not changed the rule of law. Well, the, the final final Mises quote, the modern state seeks to expand its discretionary power. Everything is to be left to the discretion of officials. Now, if when he wrote that, that was true. That, now the word is not officials, the word is experts. The experts' discretion define your freedom. Uh, the experts say that you must wear a mask. The experts say you cannot attend a funeral. The experts say you cannot walk your dog on the Derbyshire Peak District Hills, the experts are all-powerful. And, and where was the defence of the rule of law? Where was the rule of law as a concept that was any use to us, any practical use to us? It appeared that the majority of the people in the country had forgotten it even existed, and it was certainly the case that the police, the authorities and the judiciary had completely abandoned the concept as a concept of restraint. Rather than a concept of restraint upon power, it's become a concept of, of coercion by power. It's how we're coercing, coercing the Russian government. It's how we are coercing our own people. It's become the flip. It's become black has become white. That is why this, this conversation is so important, right? Because, because the rule of law 
was if it, if it, if it came about as a result of uh, as a sort of basis for common law if it came about around the time of Magna Carta, which which was effectively a peace treaty, as we've already mentioned, uh, where the people were holding the monarch of the day to account. And if we look at all the subsequent uh, constitutional documents we have, including the Bill of Rights, the, the, the Declaration of Rights and the Bill of Rights, they're there to, to maintain this principle that the law applies equally to everyone. At that point, it was effectively a a guarantee of liberty and a guarantee of, of the entire basis of our nation. And it's, as, as David has just said, it has been turned into something which is oppressive because it has been redefined by the current administrations, recent administrations, to be something which means it's been effectively been turned into an imposition of the divine right of whichever is the executive of the day. So it's no longer the divine right of kings. It's now the divine right of not even parliament, but the divine right of the executive, as you said, and and it's there to 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 effectively act as a hammer of for that divine right upon the people, rather than the people holding those people those the the executive to to some kind of limitation. And Mike, what you've eloquently expressed there is something that's in in more clod hopping terms is being expressed by shall we say, the other side these days, uh, particularly American and British opinion writers I have found who write in snooty journals. Uh, what they're doing is opposing the rule of law to democracy because democracy and the rule of law was mentioned in one breath for a long time as what set the West or the English speaking nations apart in the world. And so there are a lot of opinion writers now, uh, the toadies of those currently running our societies who say democracy isn't all you know, the plebs might want the wrong thing or want too much of a good thing. And the rule of law is there, as you just said, Mike, to say no, uh, the current people in power, the experts and the um, uh, the ministers who, who have their way in court and, and who walk over uh, juries and judges, they have a big stick called the rule of law. And that's to keep the plebs in check when they get too uh, insistent upon in, uh, immutable rights. And, a, and another aspect of that coupling of democracy, which is ultimately mob rule, 51% having tyranny of, over the 49, being coupled with the idea of the rule of law, which is originally uh, immutable principles which cannot be circumvented by any power. Right? Coupling those two, democracy and the rule of law, almost as one compound word, right? that's been exploited because now when, uh, when I went to try and be, uh, make a speech on the green outside parliament and a policeman came over to threaten me with arrest and tell me I must not do this thing, I asked some questions and he said, well, you know, it's the law. It's and I, I asked him about rights, and he said, well, your rights, your rights are qualified rights. And when I asked what that meant, he said, well, qualified right can be varied by parliament. Okay, so democracy is ahead of this. I said, is there any limitation on what they can do? No, they said, just whatever they want. So the, the idea of democracy, because democracy has been made this god, the idea of democracy essentially crushes the idea, the traditional idea of rule of law. Right? So it's now only a phrase, an empty phrase, used to do the reverse of what it originally was designed for. And of course, the maxim that has been rejected there is this one that Mike was alluding to, be you never so high, the law is above you. Or as Samuel Rutherford nearly paid for with his life, a book title Lex Rex, meaning the law is king. 
He was arguing that until then the executive or king had made the law, but no, it was the other way around. That's what's gone by the board uh, in what you've described there, because qualified rights, gentlemen, we now see uh, in summer 2022, as we record this, uh, the government is pretending that the 1689 Bill of Rights isn't there, and it says it's going to legislate a modern British Bill of Rights. Uh, and the more we see about the uh, ministerial will in tabling this in Parliament, the more hints we get that if you belong to the category naughty boy, such as protester or wrong thinker, then your rights can more easily be curtailed. You don't deserve the, um, the perks that good prisoners have. Isn't that the sense that you're getting? Yes, and another, another phrase for naughty boy would be dissident. You're not allowed to be that either. So you're not allowed to listen to this podcast, of course. It's, it's not lawful for you to listen to this podcast in the latest definition of that word. Have we got to the bottom of what of what the rule of law is? And the reason I ask that, because it's interesting how this conversation has gone so far. I think it, it was uh, um, Dicey said that the rule of law was was three things, and we've actually discussed two of them. So the the, the fact that, that you've got uh, the idea of law as opposed to arbitrary power, then you had that everybody is equal under the law. And then, but the third thing he said was that uh, constitutional laws are the consequence of uh, the rights of individuals and not the source of the rights of individuals. So if we have a constitution which is there to to provide the rules by which we are governed and to limit uh, those who govern us and how they govern us, his, his third point was that those laws aren't the source of the rights of individuals. They are the consequence of those rights. And I'd be interested in your views on, on whether that is correct. I, I think it is largely correct. And once again, we see that Albert Van Dicey is not the absolute fanatic of the supremacy of Parliament that he's often made out to be. I have here also a, a Dicey quotation. It's pages 252 to 253 of his Thoughts on Scottish Union. And he writes, this is regarding the year when the Scottish and English parliaments were, well, merged or more technically uh, collapsed into one new parliament. Quote, the statesmen of 1707, though giving full sovereign power to the Parliament of Great Britain, clearly believed in the possibility of creating an absolutely sovereign legislature which should yet be bound by unalterable laws. We don't hear much of that language anymore. David, did you think that that definition by, Dave, by Dicey was getting near the mark? Well, well yes, and, and again, I would contrast that with the, with the modern interpretation, which is whatever Parliament decides is the law is the law. Therefore, if we get in the new Bill of Rights, and the new Bill of Rights basically says you have no rights, or the new Bill of Rights say, says your rights are entirely at the discretion of the government, then that becomes the new rule of law, that that's what the law says. What you, you don't want to be, uh, your rights to be at the discretion of the government? Well, you're opposing the rule of law. This is how it's been reversed. The idea that parliament sovereigns are, are, are thorny subject in its own right, but it's very interesting that, that originally the idea was there was a law above that. They could not vary. Now, if you're then arguing to that, um, you're arguing to principle, you're arguing to ideas. When we see this played out, particularly on an international scale, and it's, it's at international level this gets used, the phrase barely 
survives anymore on a domestic level. It tends to be international politics that, that, it, that, is, that is rolled out to influence or to claim virtue for one side. And what they say is there is a rule of law and, and such and such a country is in contravention of it. But what they mean, of course, is a convention passed at a supranational body which may or may not be relevant to the case in point. And there's never any argument of ideas. It's always an argument to authority. The UN says, the EU says, the G7 says, the worldwide community of nations, however defined, says. So it's always authority-based, which is the very reverse of what this principle is originally alluding to. It's always authority-based, and it's never principle-based, because when you dig down into the principles, you get something wrong with democracy, and then, then the, the, that's kind of the end of the story. What's interesting about that definition by Dicey is that it has three points, and a note I had here was uh, the definition given by perhaps the most famous English jurist of the, uh, the current day, Lord Jonathan Sumption, formerly a Supreme Court of the UK Justice. Just a couple of weeks ago, in mid-June 2022, on the 10th of June, uh, he gave an interview to Australia's excellent interviewer, John Anderson, which is easily found on johnanderson.net.au. And here at two minutes in, Lord Sumption also gives three points in defining the rule of law. I'm sure he's quite influenced by Dicey uh, here, but uh, this is what Lord Sumption says. He says, we, talk, we often talk about the rule of law in almost hushed tones. You know, a sort of sacred doctrine that stands behind freedom of, and justice. Sorry, this is the interviewer, John Anderson, setting up the question. But we rarely hear it defined, so I'd love to hear your explanation of how we should understand the rule of law, and secondly, how common it is. Lord Sumption answers, it seems to be, to me, not to be as common as we might assume it to be. The rule of law it has become something of a cliché of political discussion. It's used about 20 times more often in judicial decisions than it was a generation ago. And just interpolating in my own words here, uh, as Alex, I will say that that's even more true on the continent in a country like the Netherlands. They're always putting in the most pretentious decisions the rule of law dictates. Uh, so Lord Sumption continues, and you're right that not many people pause to work out what it actually means. I think that it implies three things. First of all, I think it means that the public authorities have no power to coerce us, interesting choice of words, given COVID, except what the law gives them. Secondly, says Lord Sumption, it means that there have got to be a minimum of rights. There's a lot of debate about what those rights are, or I would add again in my own words as Alex, uh, whether each of them, each of us has those rights equally or whether we can uh, earn demerits by being wrong thinkers. But says Lord Sumption, I think that these rights must at least include laws that safeguard you against arbitrary interference with your life, with your freedom and with your property. Of course, Lord Sumption is uh, at least alluding to the US Declaration of Independence preamble there, because otherwise, Lord Sumption says, you're not a society at all. You're simply, and this is what David's been sketching, a group of people in which the strongest prevails. And thirdly, says Lord Sumption, I would say that the rule of law comprises independent courts to enforce those minimum rights, to enforce the criminal law, and to ensure that governments and public authorities remain within their powers. Mike, 
uh, as you brought up Dicey's definition, as you were listening to that, did it strike you as largely on the same page as Dicey, or perhaps uh, a man who's who's seen how society has degenerated since Dicey's day and wishes to introduce more correctives? I think it's not dissimilar to Dicey. I, I don't know if you remember, Alex, but a couple of, of a couple of years ago, or three or four years ago, maybe Sumption did uh, a series on Radio Four where he was making some of the same kinds of points on this issue. Um, but just getting back to what Dicey said, just thinking about this, that the constitutional laws are the consequence of the rights of individuals. That means that the rights of individuals are preeminent above any anything else. So uh, with respect to how, the, the, how we are governed. So that in, in that sentence negates the idea of human rights, which, of course, as we've already mentioned, are uh, the consequence of a government deciding what our rights are. So, so in Dicey's definition, and I think hinted at by assumption as well, whatever, whatever those rights are, th- those rights are, come first. They're coming from something outside of uh, us as, as a group of human beings in, in a society. Everything flows from that. The form of government that we've ended up with is defining what, what our rights are, and they're subservient to that form of government, and that is a reversal of where we should be. I think there's something deeper working here. Just looking at these points made by Lord's assumption, they're very interesting. So point number one, there's no right for the, of the state to coerce except where the law gives them such a right. But we're accepting that laws can be created by parliament, i.e. by the state. So the minute we accept that man can make law, not regulation, not legislation, not something lesser, but something that actually qualifies as law, then that point number one falls because that means that the state has no right to coerce unless it claims that right. Point number two, there was no, there's to be no arbitrary interference on life, freedom and property. Who defines arbitrary? We've seen our life, freedom and property trampled through COVID based on a, a transparent pack of lies, but that's not arbitrary because that's for safety. So in practice, the weakness of the argument, the illogicality of the argument didn't actually matter as long as it had political support because it couldn't be called arbitrary. It wasn't arbitrary. They weren't doing it just because. They were doing it for a reason. It was a very poor reason. It was a very poorly understood reason. It was a very poorly selected reason. It may not have been the real reason, but it wasn't arbitrary. So protection number two falls. And protection number three is independent courts, independent government-owned operated and funded courts, right? That's no such thing. That's a contradiction in terms. What it should be is a jury of your peers. So protection number three falls. So what you see is the apparent polishing up of the edifice of the rule of law. But in fact, this, this, this to use an architectural term, this entire structure's founded on sand. And when the floods come, it will fall. Mike, you had some comeback on that, I think. The key answer to that is jury. If you accept that Parliament has the right to make law, then, of course, constitutionally, in this country at least, the jury has the right to uh, annul that law, as we've mentioned on a previous programme. So so that's, that is the protection. But, of course, we're seeing the jury increasingly set aside uh, and, and we have lost 
the independence of the courts to a large degree. And in fact, we've got legislation coming through. can't remember which particular bill it is, but we've got legislation coming through which is going to remove even the right to judicial review. Uh, and so further removal of the independence of the courts. Indeed. So that's the third point in um, Lord Sumption's definition challenged. Uh, the rule of law, I don't think it's ever been preached by its well-educated advocates as a panacea, just like any check or balance or safeguard in a constitution cannot be the cure-all. Uh, for example, uh, law schools often teach the difference between uh, invariable laws known as peremptory norms, such as thou shalt never torture, not even if your prisoner knows how to stop the bomb going off, right, that's peremptory, versus regulative law. And that's a rather eyebrow-raising phrase to some because law and regulation are thought of as two different categories, but there is such a thing. In fact, quite a large bulk of law in the West is regarded as regulative law. It's to give the judge and where they exist a jury uh, a, a strong guide where their conscience doesn't rebel. You know, that's possibly one uh, shortcoming that's in the, in the system, but less, uh, less well acknowledged than it should be. And another, in fact, is added by Lord Sumption in his interview with John Anderson, because when he's given those three points, Lord Sumption says, and this is just before four minutes into the interview, having said that, that is having given his three point definition, I think it's quite important to understand what the rule of law doesn't mean. The rule of law doesn't mean that every moral or political demo dilemma and every public issue has to have a legal solution. A lot of people, says Lord Sumption, think that that is what it means. If it doesn't, the rule of law can include a situation in which the laws are pretty unpleasant, in which rights are minimal beyond the ones that I've outlined. I wouldn't like to live in a society like that, but I wouldn't say that it lacked the rule of law. And more generally than that, people often do say that North Korea has the rule of law because people know what the law is and they obey it. Let's go back to Dicey's definition, because I'd like to explore that a little more, in a little more depth. So the first principle, no man is punishable or can be lawfully made to suffer in body or goods, except for a distinct breach of law established in the ordinary legal manner before the ordinary courts of the land. In this sense, the rule of law is contrasted with every system of government based on exercise by persons in authority of wide arbitrary or, dis or discretionary powers of constraint. Now, in the UK now, you if, you, if you look at the conduct of social services, wide arbitrary discretionary powers of constraint defines what they are, defines how they operate. Uh, if you look at... Um, the tax revenue service in all the various countries, it's very much like that. And um, not only do they write their own their own rule book, but the rule book is so huge and so convoluted, nobody knows it. What that's suggesting is that in huge areas of life, family, tax, and, and I'm sure there are many more, that the rule of law has been abandoned. Um, the second principle, every man, whatever his rank or condition, is subject to the ordinary law of the realm, to the jurisdiction of the ordinary tribunals. Now, we, we know all too painfully from 
the stories we've covered in our and, and, and some personal experience in campaigning, that that's not true now either. If you are a local authority official, you can get away with almost anything. It is written into the contract for, certainly in Scotland, for government officials, that if they then, because of the exercise of their government role, find themselves in um, civil court being sued or in criminal court being prosecuted, if it's in the interest of the state, the state will, will step in and fund their defence. Right, so there's no pretense that there's not privileged people. They're they're not they're not privileged because they've inherited it by birth, but they're privileged because they occupy privileged positions. And the third one, third principle was that uh, there was an unwritten constitution in the UK that could be uh, said to uh, pervade be pervaded by the rule of law because rights to personal liberty or public uh, meeting resulted from judicial decisions, whereas under foreign constitution, such, right, such rights flowed from a written constitution. So the lack of the written constitution and the organic nature of the constitution within Britain and the historic nature of, of the rights that were claimed were all seen as protections. Now, that's been eroded steadily and and. The, the current um, plan for a UK Bill of Rights may be the final nail in that coffin. So, again, the, I mean, DICE is getting at issues that are very significant, but as you compare that to current practice, what you see is a huge degradation, a huge decline, decay in the concept and the application of the concept from 19th century to now. That describes one of the psychological operations has been run on the population, and that is the notion that new is good and old is bad, uh, when in fact, constitutionally, in this country, we should be looking with pride on the oldest laws that we have, because these are laws that generation after generation after generation of British people have felt were good laws. But we're throwing that all away, and in fact, we're being told that if we look back at history and with pride, that we're being nostalgic, and that nostalgia is a bad thing. Our ancient laws are no longer fit for the modern world, as if the modern world is in some some way, on a, some fundamental basis, different to the, to the way the world has been at any point in history. Magna Carta is 800 and something years old. The principles upon which that peace treaty was was arrived at are the same principles that are expressed throughout hundreds of years, throughout all our constitutional documents. They're good principles, but now we throw them away because governments find them inconvenient. There was barely a state in 1215, and so in a very true sense, a necessary sense, it was the law that ruled at Runnymede. Of course, it acted through the persons of barons, and of course, the social historians will point out the barons had their class interests, uh, but it wasn't uh, a state, much less a parliament that didn't yet exist in a regular sense, uh, or a judiciary that didn't yet exist in a modern sense, that called King John to order for his abuses. It was the law, and that has given us the term, the rule of law, although the term is much later than 1215. And I make that point because uh, having translated from a lot of European languages, I have not yet come across a single European continental 
language in which the phrase rule of law exists. The equivalent phrase in French, German, Dutch, and all the way over to Armenia, where there is a party, or used to be called Orinats Yerkir, freely translated rule of law, the actual term is a state bound by law, or a state of law. The most famous of these terms is the German one, Rechtsstaat. So it's the state, the modern creation, that gives this legal guarantee. We are pretty unique in Britain in understanding that it's the law itself that governs. And I would have to say that it's been a great pleasure to sit here and watch Mike create an entirely, entirely new concept. In fact, perhaps an entirely new line of study, that of constitutional entropy. Well done, Mike. <laughs> pleasure. Do explain entropy, David, for those who don't spend their time reading up on genetics or bridges. It's, every, it's the second law of thermodynamics. Everything's winding down. The perfection was, a, was at creation and everything's downhill. So uh, energy becomes dissipated and more uniformly spread through the universe so that there isn't the same contrast between hot and cold and everything becomes kind of bland and, and, and low quality. In genetics, there's an assembly, an accumulation of negative mutations. So each generation is less fit than the one before. So in constitutional terms, each generation, the constitution is slightly less fit than it was for the previous generation. It's a bit late in the episode to bring in many new concepts, but I wonder whether either of you would like to talk about the 19th century French author Frédéric Bastiat, who wrote a, a much-read treaty, but it's never read enough, called The Law, because he introduces the idea that bandits can engage in legal plunder by using what he calls the colour of law, that is, the disguise of law. And he's one of the authors that talks about a whole class of people who get into power as being rentier, sometimes pronounced as rentier. In other words, they, they cream their existence off the productive part of society by forming guilds and then saying, this is the law, you have to like it or lump it. Ultimately, we get to modern examples like the regulatory capture by the pharmaceutical regulators like the MHRA, an, ex an egregious example. Does this have much to do with the abuse of the term rule of law, or am I looking uh, for, for connections that aren't really there? Oh, no, you're right over the target there. And, and there is no library of liberty that is complete without Frederick Bastiat's The Law. It's a wonderful, wonderful piece. Um, there's a there's a version of it available on YouTube, read by Floyd Lilly, uh, which is a joy to listen to. He talks about legal plunder. The, the equivalent of this is, of course, um, the Christian libertarian view, thou shalt not steal, including by majority vote. Right? The idea that you have a property protection system that becomes the instrument of property expropriation uh, it shows the absurdity and the illegality of the entire basis of our society. Legal plunder should be uh, an, a, a complete anathema. It should be an oxymoron because the legal sh system is what should protect the individual from being plundered by the strong. Instead of that protection, it becomes the instrument by which the strong plunder the individual and worse than that tells the individual that it's it's right that he should be plundered and should he try and resist the plunder and hide any of his own hard-earned cash then then he is he is wrong and evil and criminal for doing this and he must go to jail and he must 
He must pay his debt to society because he is robbing the whole of society by trying to keep the, the proceeds of his own labour. It's a form of part-time slavery and um, Bastiat explores it in this beautiful essay with such elegance that I, I, can't, I can't recommend it highly enough. Gentlemen, I think we have uh, addressed the subjects more succinctly than I feared we would have been able to do. And perhaps the secret of our success, if we've had any with this episode, is that we have not attempted to respond to various mainstream uh, uses of the term rule of law that are all around us, perhaps because they don't mean very much. Uh, but I would just, in closing, underline that it's a question of who sets the law above all. And not for nothing did I want to entitle this episode Rule of Whose Law. One of the tricks played in English is if you leave out the definite article, it becomes harder to spot what definition you're using. Law sounds so weighty that most people forget to ask what and particularly who gave it and by what standard. Join us again in, we hope not another year's time, but somewhat sooner when we record the last of these preliminary episodes, which will be on the nation state and the crown.